Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. I'm your host, Matt Trumpet, and it's time for tech. And we're lucky enough to be joined by that story denizen of the tech deep, Matthew Summerfield, aka Summers F1, who is technical editor at motorsport.com. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. Not a problem, Matt. It's an absolute pleasure, as always. Indeed. And there's so very, very much uh, for us to talk about today. But before we get started, I need to remind everyone that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. And since you kindly interrupted your summer holidays to have a few words with us, I felt like Maybe now is the time to start trying to weave a narrative out of all the technical adaptations we've seen over the season. So with your permission, I kind of want to go back to the beginning, to the very beginning, to testing. And and just the story for me, the most amazing thing for me has to be just the wildly divergent side pod solutions that we saw. So for, for our viewers and listeners, could you just go over why we are seeing these solutions. What are they trying? What are the teams trying to do with these different looking side pods? Yeah, I mean, obviously the side pods were the big story because I think one of the things that we really thought about these 
new technical regulations that was that we were perhaps going to get identical cars so you know the likes of f2 f3 and and fortunately enough there's a, enough design freedom out there for the, the teams to really get uh, down to the knuckle of it and try to make something very different from one another and i think across the the span of the grid we have indeed saw quite a few different variations obviously they are starting to converge in many ways um but they're all obviously trying to achieve very similar goals um that is built upon not only their historical reference point from the regulations that have gone past but also in trying to develop concepts going forward based upon obviously these new technical regulations which put a hefty focus on delivering downforce from the underfloor okay and as a result of that, uh, we were treated to, well, I, you know what really sort of got to me um, is that how different the cars looked from test one to test two. And you've been covering the sport a long time. Have you ever seen that level of change? I mean, I suppose you could see it maybe an A team from time to time would show up with last year's car and then show up with this year's cars. But have you ever seen that level of evolution between the first two tests? I think we have in the past when we've had big regulation changes, sort of 2009, 2017, 2014 on some levels, although that came a little bit later because of the the, the switch to hybrid power units. Uh, but from an aerodynamic point of view, I think because of the quantity of change that we've got here and as we've had in those previous regulations, you do t tend to see the, the teams kind of feeling their way out there um, and almost actually taking a look at one another just to, say, to, to kind of say, well, what what we've done are we validated in what we've done because we're seeing a trend appear from one team to another uh, and that how that pans out in terms of performance i mean you only have to look at the, the fact of say williams you looked at their original base design that arrived uh, for pre-season testing and it looked uh, on paper to to look like quite a very mature solution However, they quick, quickly realised that perhaps it wasn't going to offer the level of performance they were looking for uh, and, and sort of put that to one side uh, and pick something else out of the design parts bin uh, and followed a, a, another route from what we've seen elsewhere and optimised it to their own setup. So I think we've seen a lot of that up and down the grid to try to recharacterise the design concepts of the 2022 cars. And I don't think we're really finished in that respect. I, I do think there's still a lot of design scope uh, to, to be had from this particular rule set as well. Okay. Uh, before we um, move off of this subject, uh, I had sort of, I, I was thinking we would talk about the porpoising, which also showed up, but you've brought it up. So fine, we'll do it your way. We have now, I'd say roughly three main design threads. We've got the Red Bull thread, we've got the Ferrari thread, and then we've got the Mercedes thread. But we had more than that at testing. Which were the designs that quickly went the way of the dinosaur this season? And let us just perhaps raise a glass in memoriam to their cleverness, even if their lack of practicality did not win them any prizes. Okay, so I think we've probably got really two design concepts that fell relatively flat on their face and i don't think it's because but the potentially they didn't have the performance there i think it was that the cars had a very narrow operating window uh, based around their aerodynamic configuration so they, they obviously migrated away from them but we've got aston martin uh first out the blocks they had the high-waisted side pods with a very deep undercut uh flat topped 
very lent down um, inter- intercoolers and uh, radiators within the side pods. Uh, and obviously that concept just didn't work for them. They moved to the Red Bull style, as we know, that uh, they've got pretty much the, uh, very much of a Red Bull design. Uh, and then obviously the other design concept that's kind of fell a bit to the wayside is the shorter style side pods, which we saw on the McLaren and on the Williams. They've obviously matured more towards a different trend as well. Uh, and there are reasons behind that. I don't know if you want to get into that now or whether we will move to, into that a little bit later down the line. But as with everything, it's about optimising the flow over the entirety of the car. And the way in which the side pods have had to be designed this year, I think it's a lot of teams were trying to perhaps look at their historical data and use that in line with the old um, regulations in mind and apply them to these new regulations. And I think they've had to kind of had a little bit of a rethink on that, uh, just purely because of how uh, these cars perform. Okay. And so the last thing that I want to bring up uh, is now I do want to get to the porpoising. We, did, we didn't really hear a lot about it in test one, and it became a very big issue in test two. And it gets my nod for um, the main driver of a lot of development throughout the first part of the season, which I don't think anyone thought was going to be the case when it first popped up. But can you explain a little bit about why you think it was such a bigger deal than it seemed like it should have been and sort of where it came from and why the teams especially seem so uh, very unprepared for it? Yeah, I mean, I I think the teams obviously got tripped up by this. I, I do think that they're a little bit coy in that I don't believe that they didn't fully comprehend that it wouldn't be a problem because it's not an issue that we haven't seen before as you know in formula one when we when you talk about the ground effect cars of the 70s and 80s porpoising was an issue back then um we've had it in lmp cars sports cars so it's a well-known issue um but fundamentally i think that the teams didn't really expect there to be too much of a problem based upon the overall designs of the cars obviously the the the, the biggest perhaps driver of the the problems that we foresaw are suspension compliance um aerodynamic instability and i think that perhaps there was a beat missed in terms of the way that the the tires um performed in those opening phases once performance was actually put onto the car because we have to remember that the mule cars of the previous generation that were used to test these particular tires were operated under a very different set of circumstances you know they were operated with um designs of suspension compliance downforce levels that weren't really in line with the kind of thing that we were expecting to see with these particular cars so uh, it's always difficult for Pirelli when they're doing development especially when they're jumping into a new generation Uh, I think any tyre manufacturer is always going to have that kind of headache uh, especially when you're trying to build performance into uh, the the tyre model itself so I think there's a, a lot of contributing factors um and i think there was a lot of targets missed by teams in many ways as well uh, and perhaps they didn't quite grasp the the gravity of the situation and and obviously they're so used to setting their cars up in certain ways and now they've got a very different set of circumstances to deal with and that's perhaps where we, we've seen them struggle a little as well 
Yeah, and many less tools to deal with them. Before we move on, could you explain for me, because I'm guilty of this, someone will say something that sounds clever, and I will just use it casually in conversation, knowing that nobody else knows what it means either. But could you explain what you mean when you say suspension compliance a little bit? Okay, so under the previous regulations, we had things like hydraulic heave dampers. Now, the cars still have heave dampers, but they're not hydraulic-based. So we have um, uh, either traditional uh, spring derangements or we have uh, Belleville Springs. But that's what I mean by compliance. A lot of the teams were using a hangover from things like Frick. You know, we, we have to remember that Formula One goes in a development cycle and teams will then continue to try to use those ideas and reincorporate them into their systems. So we've still had some hangovers from that legacy let's say, uh, of the, those being outdated. The, suddenly we've got um, a very different arrangement in terms of suspension. And I think from an aerodynamic point of view, that, that can have a, have a major impact because obviously you know, the, the aerodynamic loadings can be affected by the suspension itself and the compliance of the suspension, whether that's vertical or longitudinal, roll, heave, there's lots of different things that has to be built into the, the suspension molding to be able to get the best from it. And obviously, if you've reduced the amount of tools that the designers have at their disposal, you've obviously made it more difficult for them to get the level of performance that they once had. And I think that's probably where we started to see uh, the oscillations propagate for things like porpoising. Uh, and obviously, we still get a lot of bouncing uh, when we're on circuits that are uh, not as smooth as billiard tables like the drivers would particularly like. Yeah, well, and and correct me if I'm wrong in understanding this, but compliance basically is the ability of the car to handle a motion either from side to side or up and down. How well it handles it is is essentially what you're talking about when you talk about compliance. But am I also understanding that when we first heard about porpoising, we were all told that it was the floor was sealing and there was more downforce and it would drag down until it stopped sealing. But you're telling me that the suspension uh, was feeding into that behavior, and that became part of the problem and one of the difficulties for the teams as they tried to unpick that knot. Well, it's all going to be a part of that performance loop at the end of the day because, you know, the setup is intrinsically linked to the aerodynamic map of the car. Uh, and so the, the, the designers will have to work with that in mind. Uh, and as you say, that is part and parcel of understanding how to get the best from the car over a given weekend. And I think it's why we often see a particular car come up the up the grid at a particular race because they'll have dialed certain aspects of the car in uh, and you know then they, they fall down uh, at other circuits because they can't quite get into that very narrow window uh, of performance okay and before we move on and start talking about actual cars and their their seasons thus far and where they started and where they've come to i recall that mclaren in particular had uh, real issues with their testing but that wasn't aerodynamic or porpoising. Do you know what that was about? Yeah, McLaren had an issue with uh, brakes, and particularly it was to do with uh, overheating the brakes. Uh, one thing that's perhaps gone a little bit under the radar this year is the way that, the, again, tools that have been taken away from the teams in terms of being able to be more flexible in terms of aerodynamics and uh, brake cooling. So if we look at the, the front brake, uh, arrangement on the cars this year they've got a much larger uh, front brake drum because obviously you've got a larger well inside the now 18 inch wheel rim rather than a 13 inch wheel rim 
Uh, and so you've got much more space to accommodate the airflow in and out of the, the drum itself. On top of that, the teams can no longer push that airflow out through the wheel face, which they were doing um, with great trickery, let's put it, um, under the previous regulations for aerodynamic gain. Uh, so that airflow and that heat has to go somewhere. Most of the teams, not all, have used what I call a brake shrouding. Uh, they've enclosed the disc within a shrouding of its own very tightly in order that they control the heat and how it dissipates out of the assembly. And McLaren have one of these, and unfortunately, it wasn't quite performing as they anticipated. Now, in the first test, that particular setup was carbon. When they came to rectification for Bahrain, they made them out of metal. And it was a rather crude reinterpretation of, a, of that setup and that system. But obviously, it helped them to overcome some of the issues they were having. They actually ran that setup for about three or four races until, obviously, the carbon ones came back through the manufacturing process. Um, and obviously, since then, they've, they've gone on to sort those issues. But, you know, these are all things that we must remember that these cars being prototypes, they're always going to evolve in many, many different ways to try to optimise, uh, you know, Although physically the cars might look similar from one race to the next, there, there's thousands of parts that get changed and optimised to the very small, smallest minute details in order to just gain that very, very small percentage of performance. Uh, whether that comes down to weight, whether it's aerodynamic, whether it's to reduce heat, you know, there's so much going on behind the scenes to try to absolutely nail that, that lap time. Uh, and that's where Formula One has a massive gain over most of the, the motorsport categories, you know, because they're, they're mainly spec series, whereas obviously Formula One is very much a prototype series. It is indeed. So with that stage set, let's move on and talk about the Red Bull. And we're going to start with Red Bull instead of Ferrari, partly because it didn't seem to be that well baked. In the first couple of races, I mean, we came out of testing and I think pretty much everyone agreed the Ferrari looked like, and they were at pains to make it not look like, but the Ferrari just looked like the car that had it over everyone else in the first couple of races. And uh, you know, once you saw the Red Bull, you think that, no, uh, that, that, yeah, Ferrari kind of does have it. We saw the first race and th it looked like Ferrari was a better car. And, and all of a sudden with their very first update, Red Bull shows up and they are just on it. So where did they start and what was that first big move about for them? Okay, so I think that's pretty much the way in which Red Bull tend to operate. Um, they, they arrive with a package that they fully understand in many ways, and then they will try to iterate from there onwards um, in smaller portions, but over a longer period of time. And so I think the other thing that we must mention at this point is that big ticket items that we had in the past that tended to bring large portions of performance are no longer really the parts that are needing to be changed. So you used to see teams bringing front wings, new front wings and rear wings to pretty much every race uh, because obviously that's where they could gain in terms of performance, in terms of the efficiency targets, uh, you know, if they're going to a high downforce or, or low downforce circuit. Now, there obviously are some some changes in that respect, but I don't think we're really seeing what we used to see in that regard. And a lot of the design changes now tend to be around the floor and the side pods because those are the areas of the car where the teams have much more freedom in terms of the design aspects. Uh, and, and obviously that is where we've seen the most put on from uh, Red Bull's point of view. Uh, they, they've 
really iterated on the floor. They've made subtle changes to the side pods as well in line with that, uh, and obviously the engine cover, etc. But uh, the, the majority of where Red Bull have tended to find their performance is floor-orientated, and then around that, they've, they've, they've obviously optimised other areas as well. Okay, so one of the talking points that came out of these races, about three or four in, was the basic concept of the Red Bull car in that it had a very high top speed and seemed to operate around uh, for its lap time with less downforce than its rivals. That was a conclusion based on the speeds we were seeing early on. Is that one that you share? Do you think that's, that was a fundamental choice to take the power unit and the aerodynamic design of the car and say that over the course of a season, we'll do better if we approach all the races with this is our basic model and then very downforce levels according to circuit. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously contrary to the way in which that we perceive Red Bull to have operated over the course of the last few regulation sets as well because they've always tended to be the ones the lowest in the speed traps. Whereas this year, if you look at the speed trap figures, they're actually nearly at the top almost every race, which obviously does go to prove that the Honda Power Unit is one of the most powerful on the grid. However, you also have to consider the the efficiency level of the car, and I think that's where Red Bull have made the most gains. Because if you ask me who has the most downforce, so I'd probably still say Red Bull. Um, because although they are in that top speed bracket, they're still very good through apex speed. So you know it's that it's that very tight balance between the the way in which you approach your car design to be able to maximize each and every track but as you say at circuits that were traditionally red bull stable tracks hungary monaco singapore you know all the very tight street circuits is where you seem to see that they've slightly fell back from the the example of uh, ferrari and that as you say is primarily because they have perhaps staged their car towards the top end of the bracket rather than the bottom end of the bracket and work, and they're working backwards from there, whereas other teams are working from the other end of the spectrum. And so, you know, you've got this clash of styles going on and that's where we start to see the convergence in many ways of all the different solutions that will appear up and down the grid. Yes, and I do want to talk about that. The thing that struck me um, early on, I, I, I don't remember which race it was, maybe the second or third race, was I believe Marco or Horner making the comment that, oh, every development we brought to this race um, correlated almost exactly with what CFD and the wind tunnel predicted. And they seem to treat that like a lottery win. Is it, is it usually the case that things don't really correlate? I mean, did they just get really lucky here or did they get also good and lucky? I think a combination of both, probably, you'd have to say. But I will go back two years to around the Austrian Grand Prix when we had Alex Albon and Max Verstappen in the car. And they were back-to-backing furiously between different configurations. And it continued on until Hungary that season. And they had major correlation issues between their simulation tools and what they were seeing on the track. And I think that we are seeing a moment in time, a flashback in time, which has then helped them this, at, at this point in time. They fixed those issues back then. And yes, you will have some digression between, and obviously you're going to have some digression between your simulation tools and the real world because 
of the the very vast change that we've had in the regulations. But I do think that that flashpoint in time um, stands out to me as a point where they perhaps or or the light bulb went on uh, and they realised they had some issues and they had to resolve them quite quickly and find out how they could resolve them should they have those issues again in the future. Okay, that actually makes a lot of sense and is a point that I want to get to later on if 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 there's time uh, about about the use of these computer and simulation tools in the development cycle. But speaking of development cycles, Red Bull has impressed me because despite despite the best efforts of Formula One, it seems like at every race they are showing up with constant little new bits to screw onto the car, and that seems to be very different than some of their rivals. So, how do they sustain this? I mean, I know there is a cost cap. That's not really what we want to talk about. But like, I mean, are, have they just decided to ignore the cost cap, or or do you think they have a way to manage it so that it might technically work? And and what do you think of their constant? Uh, race by race iteration in small pieces as as a strategy for them. Okay, so obviously there's always going to be a difference in the way in which teams go about their development cycle. I mean, you only have to look at the way that we've got Red Bull versus Haas, for argument's sake. Uh, we'll get onto that later, but um, there's always going to be a difference between the teams in the way in which they operate because there's an efficiency level at which they operate as well. And I think this is where perhaps um, I, I was a bit confused by Bonotto's statement early in the season in, in as much as he was saying, oh, well, we understand that they're going to run out of budget, talking about Red Bull, because they're, they've already spent X, Y or Z on, on development. Well, then how do you know how much they've spent on development? You're basing it upon your own development targets. And perhaps Red Bulls are just much better than yours in terms of the efficiency that they're able to bring. Uh, being able to manufacture the parts, being able to design the parts. There's obviously a cost associated to all of these um, parts that go into to manufacturing things. And so it would appear to me that Red Bull are just more efficient than some of their rivals. I've had people suggest that Mercedes are another team that have spent a lot of development money, um, but they're very much in line, if you ask me, in terms of development when you look at, at at Red Bull as well. So if anybody's falling behind in, in this pathway, it would be Ferrari, which we'll, we'll get to no doubt in a moment. Uh, but for me, it, it's more about being cost efficient and being able to manufacture those parts, design those parts prior to that uh, and get them through the system in a much better way than your rivals. Is it going to equal being able to get more parts on the car? But also on top of that, in terms of the way in which cars have been built for 2022 is very different to what we've seen in the past. Uh, we've got what you would call a modular system in reality this year. Um, the floors obviously take up a huge expanse uh, of space and weight, uh, and they're like a patchwork quilt. You can effect effectively switch out one part of the patchwork quilt and put in another part, uh, and that's what Red Bull are doing. They're manufacturing smaller parts and just exchanging one for the other. And I think that's where people may be confused when they see, oh, Red Bull have got another new floor or they've got another new bit of side pod. Well, all they've really done is interchanged a panel uh, rather than redesigning, redeploying a whole new section of bodywork. Okay. And I'm, well, I feel exactly like the Ferrari strategist must have when uh, Leclerc drove off the track and ruined all of their strategic plans because I had that modularity discussion planned for later. But Let's take a moment and talk about that. 
before we move on and wrap up Red Bull and start talking about Ferrari. What I want to know is we've seen a rise across all of the teams in in modular construction so that instead of replacing a whole floor, I can just replace this section of the floor or I can just replace this chunk of the side pot instead of all of it. Is this a long-term trend that you think will stick around or is this something that's just useful this season and maybe next season as the regs are still so uh, like the wild west out there? There's still wide open, vast spaces to explore. And once things get narrowed down, we'll go back to seeing wholesale replacements like we used to, or is it, to repeat, is it just a change in the way we're going to do business from now on? Or is it just local factors because of the new regulations? I think as the fluidity in the regulations retreats, then we might start to see uh, less of it, just purely from the point of view that um, it'll become more cost effective to make those parts uh, on a larger scale. And obviously, you will have the weight benefit of reducing the, the the part numbers on the car. In the short term, though, I think there's two reasons why we're seeing it. It's not only from a development point of view, but I think the teams are very conscious about crash damage as well. So that's partly why they're making designs modular, because they know that if something gets broken, that they've kind of got to fix it and put it back together. As we saw with Mercedes back in Austria, uh, they had to basically saw together two floors uh, to, to make one good one. Uh, and so that's kind of where we're at. You know, the, the teams are realising that suddenly they can't go spending millions of pounds on excess waste. They've got to make make do uh, and kind of, you know, just just get those parts to, to work and last for longer, which, as we know, we've got a very long calendar this year. Uh, and obviously, that's another factor that we have to think about is lifing of components. You know, things have to last that, that much longer. And something that's used at perhaps raced four might have to then go into the cycle and then be reused at race eight, for argument's sake, uh, down the line to, to be able to, to make the, the life in schedule of the parts. Okay, so that answers my question. Thank you very much. Before we leave Red Bull, we see a car with high top speed, uh, with running skinnier wings usually, whether that's efficiency or, or just for drag. But as, as a racing concept and as an engineering concept, what do you, do you see the, what are the weaknesses? Where are they vulnerable, do you think? And, and what do you see the advantages of that being? Like, one thing I would say is like, is it better for the power unit to, to, be, run, to be run that way versus how, say, Ferrari, Ferrari focusing like on acceleration, like which would do more damage? I think I think that if you were looking for weaknesses, then their biggest weakness is obviously going to be at lower speed circuits because of the way that they've decided to opt for for, for top speed. Uh, however, when you look at what they did in Hungary, they basically bought a entirely new beam wing setup, uh, which was more of what you would con- consider the traditional style that pretty much everybody else has got rather than the stacked arrangement that they've had in the opening phase of the season. So they're, they're making... Um, informed decisions to try to mitigate the issues that they've got with the car at, at the lower speed circuits. Um, but in terms of um, Red Bull's overall development, I, I think they've done a very good job in trying to cover all the bases from start to finish. And I think that as we go further into the season, uh, we'll see that play out more 
because other teams perhaps might not now have the development scope and they've already done all the homework at the start. We're also now seeing teams obviously made a, a switch to the 2023 cars quite some time ago. Uh, so we're only really going to drip feed through development for the, the tail end of the season now whilst the, the rest of the development team are on 2023. Uh, and so I think, uh, yeah, Red Bull have made a concerted effort to, to get in early and try and make a, a lead. And I think the other thing going to power units is that I think they kind of accepted the fact that they might have to take a penalty at some point uh, and just load in a new power unit. Uh, but they've got the speed to be able to come through the pack because unfortunately, although there's much talk about how things are improved with Formula One in 2022, my biggest angst against these new regulations is that we still see a huge field spread. And I, I appreciate that we might see that narrow over the course of the next few seasons but we were already at a point where the the field spread was narrowing under the old regulations so a difficult task ahead for formula one management and the fia you know in trying to rein in the expansive downforce that the teams are able to generate on these cars because i firmly believe that they're already beyond the targets of what the fia expected at this point which, as we know, is, is kind of uh, not really new ground for them. Uh, they, they try to rein the teams in and, and they never really do. So I do think we'll start to see some more restrictions coming in in order to try to, to level that playing field again. Okay, and I think we might even be able to talk about that in a little bit because I want to look at some of the upcoming rules changes in a bit. But let's talk about Ferrari now. They looked... Their tortellini side pods, I'm going to say it one more time just because I'm in charge. I know everyone calls them the hot tubs, uh, have worked really well. But it seems like they chose to have a stickier car, a car that was better in the twisty bits. Maybe that's the way I'll put it, relative to Red Bull. And that's where they look to gain most of their advantage. But what is really striking about them, and, and Bonato was clear about this from the start, is unlike Red Bull, which immediately started showing up with new bits to tape onto the car, they said, we will take our time. We will be certain what we bring is going to work the way we want it to. And then, and then they, they brought it. So did they give away their early advantage by pursuing this course? Or do you think it was appropriate, given that they started out with an advantage, that they took their time and, and were careful? I think the interesting thing from a development point of view on Ferrari, and I actually said this at the start of the season, is that I firmly believe they had the quickest car at the start of the season, but they were rapidly overtaken by Red Bull after maybe two or three races. And the reason for that is that they had a very good base car, but they hung back in the weeds, waiting a little bit to to add a bit of development on. It was almost like as if they were just seeing, engaging everybody else's response to these regulations. Have we got it right? Um, a finger in the air kind of situation. And obviously they had it right because they had the quicker car, but they haven't seemed to be able to bring the level of development that's unlocked any additional performance relative to, to Red Bull. Now, if we look at the side pods, as you mentioned, I know you like to call them the tortellinis. I call them the bathtubs, not the hot tubs. And they kind of look more like the old style 2015 era side pods in as much as that they inwash at the rear and try to drive airflow at the coke bottle 
Whereas Red Bull's downwashing side pods kind of perform two roles because they keep the airflow along the flank of the car away from uh, that downwashing side pod solution that they've got. So although it's a very efficient solution because people have CF, done CFD on it, they understand that it is very efficient. That's not to say it's performant in comparison to another solution. On top of that, if we look at Ferrari's development over the course of this season, it's very much copy pasta. Little joke there for you. Yeah. Um, they've really only copied other people's designs. There's no real intent from them in terms of coming out with something novel apart from the side pods. If we look at their, dev- their, their development so far, Bibwing, they copied from Aston Martin, which was on the car even before they'd got to launch. They copied that and had it on the car within six days. Impressive, but it's only a big wing. The floor and the ice skate, which obviously we haven't mentioned yet, a Red Bull design. So they copied that. Uh, there's, there's, there's other bits of the floor that are very much uh, Red Bull inspired. If we look at the underside, they've got um, the sort of serrated rear boat tail section, and they've also got the very uh, curved curvaceous uh, hull design near the plank. So those, again, are Red Bull-inspired sections. So although you have to appreciate that they may have come across these on in their own time prior to, to seeing the Red Bull solutions, I don't think that's the case. It's just them being very responsive and receptive to other people's solutions and being able to apply them quite quickly. But that isn't enough or it hasn't been enough, and they fell behind Red Bull in terms of the development state because they haven't initiated their own design and more or less copied what they see elsewhere on the grid to get more performance. Okay, so essentially you're saying they've Aston Martin the situation a bit. Uh, yeah, you could put it that way. They're, they're, I don't think you could quite go to Aston's levels uh, no. in many respects, but yeah, they, they've kind of Aston Martin their way out of it. Okay, um, so let's talk real quick about one other interesting comparison. We saw a great deal of the bouncing from the Ferrari, and I know that solving that problem was a key performance metric for the teams. Red Bull did not, they had it, but very rapidly seemed to get it uh, under control. Was it simply the issue that Ferrari continued to chase Red Bull solutions till they could con- for controlling that bouncing, which is, I suspect a lot of the teams probably have done, or 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 was it there, or do you think they came to their own independent solution? I think they came to their own independent solution based on the fact that they've they've kind of followed many of the cues as I've mentioned in terms of floor design from Red Bull themselves. So although they've obviously made other changes like the outboard strake ar- ar- arrangement and the uh, the inner fences on the front end of the floor. Um, and there's obviously other things that, that Ferrari have changed. I-, I still see the bouncing from time to time. I don't think they've fully dialed it out. It depends on the setup. It depends on what tyre pressures they're running. It depends on the circuit conditions. It's still there in some manner. And I think this is why the FIA are, trace- uh, uh, are continuing on with their oscillation metric that they're going to introduce uh, because it is still there. And fundamentally, whilst the teams are trying to allay any fears that the drivers are not in a, a situation where anything is unsafe, 
I wouldn't want to be bouncing around in the manner in which some of these drivers are at the speeds that they're that they're bouncing around at. So I think that's the one thing that we have to think about is that these speeds that that this is happening at is quite high. <laughs> you know, you you wouldn't want to be sat in that seat. I mean, I, I I'm not a good traveller, let's say. So I certainly wouldn't want to be bounced around and have my noggin knocked about by that. But um, I do believe that's why the FIA are continuing to 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 look at this. And I do believe they still have a lot of work going forward because even with the metric in place, I do believe that with next year's cars, we could still fall back into this trap if we're not careful. And I think that's what it's more about, is reining the teams in now in order that we don't see more problems evolve later down the line. Right. And... I'm not wrong in, in thinking that maybe when we see bouncing from Ferrari, they've shown up and gone out for the first two practices and said, oh, look, Red Bull is fast. If we just lose a little more ride height, we would be in that performance window too. But as soon as we move into that window, our bouncing comes back. So, so in, in a sense, it's a performance choice by the teams when we start to see the bouncing again, because it's ultimately kind of related to ride height. Yeah, they're chasing more performance. And, and that's where it will become very interesting in Spa uh, when we have the technical directive come in place in regards to the flexi-plank situation uh, and whether the two teams that are supposedly infringing upon that, those situations then start to have more issues with porpoising and bouncing and suddenly they have to find solutions that other teams already have this season. It, it will be interesting. And I do want to talk about that in relation to the whole field. But before we do that and talk about convergence, there is a third way, and that third way is the Mercedes way. And Mercedes did it their way. No one seems to be copying them, Summers. Why is that? Uh, because it is very difficult to get performance from what Mercedes are doing. Very, very difficult. Uh, they have a, or had, or with the original layout of the floor and side pods a very very tricky car to set up uh, and they kind of have spent the good part of eight races at the start of the season trying to dial out their issues in terms of load on the floor and just getting the car to set up and be aerodynamically efficient over a wider operating window uh, and as you've already mentioned ride height has been a particular bothersome area for for mercedes uh, they weren't running particularly tricky floors like some of their rivals were in the opening phases. They didn't have an edge wing. Uh, they certainly obviously don't have the ice skate because they do have an edge wing uh, because an edge wing is an ice skate, if you understand that. Um, and I think fundamentally the, the, the biggest gain that we saw from Mercedes came around Silverstone when they introduced their big upgrade package and I think one of the things that's perhaps been missed about that upgrade package is what they did to the volume of the chassis around the front suspension. They basically packed it out to create a huge surface for aerodynamic gain to downwash the airflow over the uh, front edge of the floor and the side pods. And that fundamentally has changed the, uh, the way in which the, the airflow works around the front end of the car and obviously then has an impact further downstream. They've done a huge amount of work and to stick with it, I think was very, very interesting because they could have chucked the towel in just like Williams and Aston Martin did, switched concepts, chucked everything in the bin and said, no, we can't do this. 
but as a, one of the leading teams to be able to outdevelop that massive problem they have, I find very fascinating. It is fascinating. Could you take a moment and just maybe explain what is so hard about the design that Mercedes brought? Because I looked at it and I thought, oh, wow, that, that's got to be way less drag because there's basically they've ditched the side pods entirely. I, I get that it makes cooling a little more challenging. But but what is hard about what is so hard about that design and what makes their setup window, which they've admitted themselves, so very, very tiny? Okay, so I think there's two things to think about here. Firstly, if we look at the other solutions that we see up and down the grid, the side pods have effectively taken the role of other aerodynamic trinkets that we used to have in the sport. So we still have the problem of tire wake from the front end of the car, even though we've got things to protect from that, like the wake deflectors on the brake ducts. We've also got the uh, wheel rim covers, but fundamentally we've still got wake being generated by the front tire. And that wake has to go somewhere. The side pods of other teams effectively bluntly push that airflow laterally away from the car. Mercedes don't have that because their side pods are so narrow, they don't have a way of pushing the, the, the airflow away. Obviously the cis fairing that they've got does it to some degree, but it's not quite enough as to what you would particularly want. And then on top of that, because the side pods are so narrow, you've got a huge expanse of floor that is exposed to the airflow that's been pushed down onto it. So you, you've got to meet the flex tests. You've then got to protect against the load uh, with the floor hitting the, the track surface. And so they went through a huge array uh, of solutions trying to figure out how to build in uh, the, the ability to stop the floor from basically hitting the track surface and, and you know causing aerodynamic instability along the underfloor into the diffuser uh, and causing this sort of rocking sensation, the oscillation, the bounce and the porpoising. Uh, it, it was a massive, massive problem for them. And I think that's fundamentally why all the other teams went the other way and went for a more blunt solution, let's call it, in order to outwash the airflow out around the, the, the car. On top of that, you've also got to think about the drag coming off the rear wheels. So obviously, uh, the other teams using those longer side pod solutions are able to deflect the wake across the rear tyre. And Mercedes just don't have that tool available to them. And so it, it's, it's a massive trade-off, but they felt that they could gain performance from the solution that they've got. However, I do think it might have entailed a lot more drag than they originally anticipated. And so that's the, where they've had to sort of work backwards from in being able to make the car much more efficient. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a very simple question now. Having seen them at Hungary and since Silverstone, do you think they're at the point where they could actually win a fair fight with Ferrari and Red Bull at a track that suited them? In a toe-to-toe -to -toe fight, no. They're, st they're still away by at least half a second in a toe-to-toe -to -toe fight, in my opinion. I think fundamentally race strategy and a bit of fortune in terms of a safety car or a yellow flag, red flag scenario situation that would appear during a race could bring them into a fight. But I think if we were lights out to flag situation in a straight dogfight, I don't think the Mercedes are quite there just yet. Okay, so one thing that I did that was very interesting is I looked at uh, early lap times for, for Hamilton because he had mentioned, and, and Mercedes had mentioned in particular, that's where, where they struggled. And, and they do lose a lot of time in the opening laps. And so what was interesting to me about Hungary 
because of the bizarre nature of the practice and qualifying and race, was essentially Mercedes said, oh, you're getting no temperature in the tires. Well, we have no representative running. I tell you what, we're just going to put a whole bunch of extra heat in and you're just going to be really careful. And suddenly they found this massive amount of performance. Is it possible that for all their work on the aerodynamics, a lot of what they're missing is because they're just not able to treat the tires correctly or in the way that they're used to? Well, essentially, they've built a 2013 Lotus, haven't they? Yeah. They've built a car that is exceptionally good over a long stint uh, and is able to maintain their tires a lot longer than their competitors. But on the flip side, they take eight laps longer to get into a race. You know, that this is the big problem that they have. You look at them from the from a race start, and effectively the you know, the, the Red Bulls and the Ferraris have escaped down the road by eight laps before there's any heat in the Mercedes tires. At which point then they come on song, but then they're out of kilter in terms of strategy. And I think that's what's catching them out from time to time because they are so much better than the others in terms of, of uh tire longevity, but it just hasn't paid out for them because of the way the strategy works. And Fundamentally, this year, the tyres actually work out better if you are prepared to take the gamble and go for the one, one, you know, one more stop uh, and go on a softer range of tyres. And that's where Red Bull and, and Ferrari have found themselves. They're trying not to eke tyres out. They know that they can't make them, them last, whereas Mercedes are kind of unfortunately just outside that window and can go that much longer, but it's not the, the most efficient in terms of lap time. No, it's not. Although I was thinking, uh, looking back over at the Hungarian Grand Prix and, and looking at lap times, that Red Bull strategy essentially gave them two undercuts on anyone who started on the medium tires, which is, I suppose is kind of your duh, that's always going to be an obvious weakness of the alternate strategy. But with the new regulations and with overtaking, at least for them with the way they're set up, the way it is, they haven't been trapped in traffic in the way that often happens in the past. So I think you may you may have put your finger on strategically um, a miscue to design a car that way in a set of regulations that's not going to reward that strategy as much. Before we move on, I do have one more question, though. Looking back over Mercedes' dominance and looking at this season in particular, it, it struck me that maybe a lot of what we saw as them being the best team was really them having a power unit just that much better than anyone else on the grid. Do you think that's a fair assessment? And do you think we're now at a point where their power unit is actually penalizing them slightly, or at least all the teams, and I'm including Renault um, power units here as well, are at a point where it's once again, it's back down to just the drivers and the teams doing the setup and doing the development that's making the difference that we're seeing on track? I think that's a fair assessment in many ways. However, I would say that I, I firmly believe that Mercedes are better from an aerodynamic point of view over the course of the last regulation set than many people give them credit for. Uh, certainly at the beginning of the hybrid era, their, their era was the one that most teams sort of would tend to take they're designed towards uh, they were they're very adventurous that's the one thing about mercedes if you look back at their history in terms of aerodynamic uh, development they are very adventurous in the way in which that they approach things they don't just literally follow the crowd 
they will do things differently to everybody else. I only have to look at the the way in which that they've used sort of hacks or edges on on wings, etc. In the past, uh, and nobody else has ever really touched that sort of stuff. And yes, you could argue that well, you can try those things when you're so far ahead, but you still have to have a fundamental understanding of how to extract performance from it without falling into the grasp of of the rivals that are. Uh, chomping at your heels behind. So I think it is a fair assessment in some ways. Uh, but I do think, as we've just mentioned, I think one of the big issues that they've they've kind of had this year is not really uh, power unit related. It's more to do with efficiency and to do with the way in which that they've kind of fell into this tyre trap. That's where they, they, their lap time is eking away on them. They're, you know, they look at, you look at their trap figures uh, uh, and they are, towards the middle to bottom end on on most occasions, which suggests that, you know, the, the, the Mercedes power unit hasn't just failed overnight to be the best one on the grid, but the efficiency and the way in which that they use it versus the aerodynamic map of the car has meant that they have fallen down the, you know, the top speed traps in many ways. It'd be interesting to see in the back end of this season, though, how all of the teams start to perform from a power unit perspective when the new... Uh, ERS drops uh, because obviously we do have one last homologation point to to come across. Yes. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Before we move on to the future, though, let's finish up with the past. And that's that delightful word you mentioned earlier, convergence, which I like to call who's copying whom. Now we know who asked and chose to copy, but could we just take a moment to talk about that rear wing they showed up with, because that seemed to be a very inventive solution to me. Yeah, I mean, as I was just mentioning about Mercedes, that is very much the type of thing that I'm talking about. You know, it's very novel. It's something that has taken a huge amount of man hours to not only um, get get into production, because there's lots of ideas that never actually make the cutting cutting room floor. You know that. There's drawers full of ideas that are probably fantastic, but have never made it onto cars uh, because of the development cycle. And you have to go for the things that look like they're going to give you the most bang for their buck. And this thing is very, very interesting. It's not something that I think you will see at um, high-speed circuits, for argument's sake. Uh, I think it's something that you will look at for higher downforce circuits. And I'm not even sure that any of the other teams will bring that development this season, not only because uh, it's going to be a long-term project to, to put it into place, well, unless you're Ferrari, perhaps they have the capability based on what they've done so far this season in, in copying other teams. Um, but we have production issues because, as Aston Martin pointed out, that particular wing is a fresh design and they can't apply it to their old designs without getting the hacksaw out. And they don't want to do that because of the implications of that. So I'm not sure that we'll see it from many teams. It is very, very interesting that they've decided to go down that route. They had to go into consultation with the FIA uh, to to make sure that they weren't doing anything untoward. Uh, They've had to meet huge amounts of criteria in terms of the radius and curvature rules to to make it apply. And that's why you've got sort of those twisted uh, apostrophe-like top ends to the the end plates themselves. but yeah, as you say, he's a very, very interesting solution. Okay, so that said, we're both agreed. Aston had a look at the Red Bull and said, yeah, those are the side pods for us. Yeah, and the floor. And the floor. 
and the floor. You keep on reminding me about the floor. It is so important. And I keep on forgetting about it because you just can't see it when they're driving around on track. Uh, let's talk about Alpine. Where have they gotten, oh, shall we call it inspiration to avoid legal trouble? Where have they gotten their inspiration from, from, from their development path? Where, who do you think they're looking at most? Well, th- theirs is a crossover. Uh, if, it, if it's a Marvel team up, they've Marvel teamed up with Ferrari and Red Bull uh, oh. because they've, bas- they've basically got the uh, Red Bull side pod. They extended the, the, the side pod entrance forward in Baku, and then they arrived with a new side pod solution again the next race. Uh, which had the hollowed out section on the top, very much similar to we've seen from Ferrari. So they've kind of interpreted both ends of the spectrum. They've gone, let's amalgamate both and see what we can get from, from both of them. In fact, I would honestly say that I'm the most impressed by the Alpine side pods, just purely on that basis, that have been almost able to make both concept works in, in some ways. Uh, although the, the one caveat I will mention to that is that... Um, Obviously, the Ferrari design is heavily influenced by the inwash at the rear to the Coke bottle, and you don't have that with the the Alpine side pods. However, you do have the curvature on the top. So a, a very impressive design, if you ask me. It's, you know, it's bordering on both. Uh, well, I would expect nothing less from a team led by Otmar, as he was the king of efficiency back in his Force India days. Uh, but let's talk about their rival, McLaren. Where's where because McLaren normally you think oh they probably go Mercedes ish for inspiration but obviously no one is doing that because no one has the budget or knowledge for it so where where are they where are they headed with their design who do, who do they look like where are they getting their inspiration uh, well they're they're kind of treading a little of their own path if I'm honest they did have much narrower side pods in in very much uh, akin to Mercedes at the start of the season but they have sort of trended away from that towards a, a longer side pod with, with more of a shelf to it. It's sort of more of a, a standout on their own sort of design. If you had to peg it towards anybody, it'd probably be more towards the Ferrari design in terms of it being more inwashed um, than uh, being a downwash solution, solution. But it is trying to play both ends of the spectrum in some ways. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're kind of treading their own uh, development path. And I think that... They might be a team that we see them heading in a different direction when we head into the next regulation set and they, uh, they've they got more time to to really grasp how they're going to integrate the, the side pod solution. I think that's one thing that we have to think about with these these cars this year is that there's a lot of things that will change from tw- to 2023 because there's stuff that's baked in that can't be changed right now because it's just fundamentally part of the car. You know, things like the chassis and side pod um enclosures and the way the radiators are laid out hey you've got the power unit set up in architect in its architecture uh, so i think we'll still see more changes in that respect for 23 as well okay uh let's run through the final teams real quick alpha romeo alpha romeo again kind of in their own uh path but they have trending more towards uh, a downwash solution so yeah they they had they they've got the uh, the upper louvers uh, and they've moved uh, more down into the, the sort of downwashing solution. Okay. Uh, AlphaTauri, I'm assuming, is just more or less copying Red Bull-ish. Yeah, I mean, AlphaTauri started with that solution anyway, uh, yeah. and they haven't they haven't really moved away from it. We've not seen much from AlphaTauri this season, uh, unfortunately, in terms of development. So uh, they're still in the downwash ramp solution. 
Uh, Williams, I think we already said, was headed Red Bull's basic direction with what they were doing aerodynamically. It's basically a copy of the Red Bull, yeah. Very. I mean, if we're saying that it's a green Red Bull uh, on the Aston side, we're saying it's a blue Williams uh, Red Bull on the other side of that garage as well. So, yeah, very much a Red Bull design. Which brings me to my favourite car. And what I think of is the counterpart. All of these teams spending this money, all this furious development, and Haas shows up with a fundamentally sound design and says, you know what? We could probably do just as well as you uh, if we just get the setup right and make the tires work. And then, well, they've kind of done that, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, as we've always talked about, it's tires. It's always tires. Uh, and that's where they've kind of made their biggest and biggest gains and their biggest losses at, at different tracks is where I think they've fundamentally understood how to get the best out of them at certain tracks and they haven't at others. They unfortunately don't have too many trim levels in terms of their front and rear wings though so they are losing out from an efficiency standpoint compared to other teams in that respect you know we, we've we've seen what mercedes did for argument's sake in, in uh prior to miami where they cut basically took a hacksaw to the rear wing and i kind of expected that sort of solution to appear at Haas. But obviously they haven't got enough rear wings to get the hacksaw out on. So they've decided otherwise and they just accept the amount of drag that they've got. Um, but yeah, they, they appeared um, with the Ferrari S side pods uh, as well. Uh, they had a very much similar design in many respects prior to that, but they've, they've now moved to the full bathtub solution. And um, they, you know, why not copy Ferrari? You know, they buy pretty much everything from them in terms of hardware anyway. So it would make sense for them to continue down the same route as them. The whole layout of their car from a wheelbase point of view, the setup, the, the, the balance of the car is going to be very similar to the F175. And it is one of the quickest cars on the grid. So it makes sense for them to, to make that, uh, that adjustment, just as obviously uh, Mr. Steiner was quite eager to point out. Yeah, it does make sense. And I, I, I would wonder how much of their lack of trim was down to a couple of very expensive crashes early on in the year, because I'm certain that they're not getting anywhere near their budget cap just yet. Yeah, well, fundamentally, the, the teams that are, are down the bottom end of the pack, I still don't believe are going to operate anywhere near the budget cap. They just know where the upper teams are now. That's the big difference. And, and as we go further into the future, maybe 2025, 26, we'll start to see the budgets maybe pan out a little bit, little bit better. You'll see the, the, the bottom teams be able to come more towards the top teams in terms of, of being able to get that kind of budget in place. But the likes of Haas, I don't believe, are operating anywhere near the budget cap. Uh, and I think they're obviously making parts last as long as possible as well. You know, that's as I talked about earlier in terms of lifing, uh, when you're not making huge aerodynamic changes every week, then you have to have parts that are going to continue to, to to operate week by week, which then adds weight. And I think perhaps new parts that are suddenly coming through now might be slightly lighter than the ones that we saw at the start of the season. And that's where they're starting to make some performance gap back in terms of the, the their position on the grid as well. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. I tell you what, we've talked probably more than enough about the past, although I think we could, uh, as we both know, go on for quite some time further. How about we spend a little time and talk about the road ahead? Okay, let's start with everyone's favorite topic, 
flexi planks. We are seeing some adjustments coming into SPA. Who's going to get whacked the worst by this, do you think? Uh, I think the biggest problem here, Matt, might be how much it, that this topic has been overplayed in order to get uh, regulation or technical directive change. I'm not quite sure that it's going to make it a sig significant difference. Uh, if we remember when Frick was taken off the cars, for example, uh, it didn't make a, diff a huge amount of difference in terms of lap time, yet we had some teams that were operating a very high-end level with Frick and other teams that were just starting out on that journey. Uh, and so I'm not sure it's going to make a huge amount of difference, but I do think that it might make an issue to the front two teams in terms of the way that they have to operate the car over the course of the race weekend. As you mentioned earlier with Ferrari in terms of bottoming um, and being able to get to the performance envelope throughout the course of the weekend relative to their rivals, that's where Mercedes might steal a little bit of a march on them because they've kind of already gone through this growing pains phase. They understand how to get their car into that position, whereas the lead two might have to you know, make some readjustments in that respect. Okay. I like the sound of that. And related to that, there are also lots of discussions and much moaning in the press about some adjustments to the floor regulations for 2023. I've seen three, four, five different numbers thrown around. Do we have, do we have a winner yet? Do we know what we think is going to happen for 2023? And am I right in thinking that this is aimed at the floor edges, not at the minimum ride height or anything else like that, but just how far the floor edges have to be from the ground. Okay, so initially, when this was went into discussion, uh, there were talks of the edges of the floor being raised by 25 millimetres and the throat section of the diffuser being moved as well in terms of the kick points. Now I understand, and it hasn't been agreed yet because it has to go to the World Motorsport Council, as I understand it, that 25 millimetres will be 15 millimetres and the kick line or the throat section of the diffuser will be unchanged. So there's a few reasons for that. I think there's a lot of political manoeuvring going on in the background and whose team you are and how many votes you can get against another team might have come into play there. And also, I think you have to remember that a lot of the teams have already set their stall out for 2023 in terms of the car design. And so changing a fundamental design aspect, such as the floor and the dimensions, et cetera, could be catastrophic to some of the smaller teams because they have to chuck everything away and start again, and they wouldn't have the resource for that. And so I think it might just be a case of, I, I, I firmly believe that the FIA might have played the teams in some respects because they chucked out something that they thought was a bit too aggressive, expecting to be dragged back a little bit on their heels. And so we're still going to get something, but it's not quite as much as was originally set out for uh, when, the, when we heard about the original uh, interpretation of the new regs. Okay, so I, this is fascinating that, that, that potentially 15 millimeters of floor edge could wreck a team's 2023 car if they were far enough down the road and had already spent a lot of their resource on it. Yeah, well... <laughs> When you're 
you know, manufacturing or building or designing these cars, the, there's a huge amount of work that has to go into the, the car at the base and the way in which that you design things outwards from 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 the centre of the car. And fundamentally, the, the throat section that I mentioned that they, they were trying to, to make changes to, some of the teams were saying that this is going to change quite dramatically how we have to design the car. Uh, and so that is, in my opinion, the reason why there's been a softening uh, of the interpretation from the FIA and why we are still going to get something in terms of you know concession from the the design aspect but not everything that the FIA originally intended. Yes, well I got to say I I know that Ferrari has complained about regulations being done this way but it's a big improvement over when they just told them to take an angle grinder to half the floor so that the cars would go slower which has also happened in the past. Let's talk about something people aren't talking about, though, and the fact that we're going to see some wind tunnel and CFD time adjustments coming in because it's the second half of the season, isn't it? Yeah, well, we've already we were already in, at that point, Matt. Um, it would have been the first of July that the switchover would have happened. So, in the opening phase of the season, up until the is it the thirtieth of June, off the top of my head, uh, the wind tunnel handicapping as i like to call it wind tunnel and cfd handicapping means that uh it goes in championship order from last season so obviously mercedes would have been top of that tree though they would have only had 70 percent of the coefficients and so on and so forth until you get down to the the last place team which would have had 110 percent i think off the time it might be 115 um but as of the first of july that then goes off of the championship order for this season at that point. And so you suddenly have teams moving around in that sphere. Mercedes, for example, would now be third place. So they will have more time at their disposal in the wind tunnel and CFD. And the biggest loser in many respects is Alfa Romeo because they've made a great jump from the, towards the back to about sixth or seventh in the table off the top of my head. Might be slightly higher um and so yeah we just have a readjustment and a reconfiguring of who has what in terms of uh, allocation in in the winter tunnel and cfd and obviously bearing in mind the the way in which that that has a an implication on the cost cap as well if you saved yourself some uh, of your money uh for the tail end of the season you might have a better tail end of the season in terms of development on this car but also thinking about next year's car. And that is where the big thing that people will have to appreciate this from is the the head start that many of the teams will be able to have on the lead teams who have less at their disposal. Yeah, less time at their disposal. Uh, so who do you think, based on the, the table as it is now, who's going to be like kind of the biggest winner out of this readjustment? Um, and uh, let's just forget about this season because I... I for the teams that we're most interested in, it's probably developments that were already in the pipeline for them. Looking at next season, who's going to get the biggest uh, kick out of this, uh, kickstart out of this? Are the green team not near the bottom? If we're, if we're thinking about who's going to get a good gain uh, going into next season, uh, because they've kind of set out their stall towards the middle of this season, moving towards the Red Bull philosophy. So they've spent a huge chunk of you know their resources on, on dealing with that switchover, and and now they're towards the back end. They're suddenly going to gain more wind tunnel and CFD um, than they had in the past. 
On top of that, I think Mercedes is an interesting one uh, because they've dropped from first to third in, in, in the table. So that means that they will have more at their disposal. Uh, and I think this will be a, obviously something that you won't necessarily consider to play out uh, straight away, but it is a long-term game in many respects. And as I was talking about earlier, this is part and parcel of trying to narrow that field spread because you, you've got the team switching around based on championship order. And at some point, you know, it's going to be smaller changes. There's going to be less moving around uh, as teams get better and better towards one another. But fundamentally, I think Aston Martin and Mercedes will probably be the ones that, that gain the most here. Yeah, and, and they have the resource to take full advantage of the extra time that's being granted to them. And there's one more thing that I want to talk about uh, before we do some listener questions, and that is we're starting to hear some um, political, I don't know, cannonades in the press about the upcoming new power unit regulations, which I think were originally supposed to have been voted on at the beginning of June and may have been voted on four days ago, but we've not heard yet. What's going on with them? Do, do you know what the hang-up is? And, and how important is it? Because I know that the, uh, Red Bull has said, oh, you know, the, the Ferrari and Mercedes are just, they're just haggling to, to delay entry to give Porsche less time to get on top of stuff. How much of a difference does that make when we're talking about 2026, uh, as opposed to like, say, you know, next December, where you could see very clearly it would be making a difference at this point? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a huge amount of political manoeuvring going on here to to try to limit the time that's available to new and incoming um, power unit manufacturers being able to get on top of the the tech that's involved in, in being in the sport. However, I also think that there's a lot going on in terms of the FIA also positioning themselves to maximise the the new power unit itself. Uh, from how how it's set out, I, I think that the the only thing that's really changed is the nuggets of details that, that that the new power unit is going to entail. We're only talking about minute details. There's nothing fundamentally different about the power unit compared to what has been talked about in the past. It's it's a step or a, a backward step in many respects because we're losing some of the technology that's been involved in these hybrid power units. Uh, we're also perhaps going to lose some of the efficiency of, of the current power units. I don't foresee us having something that's hugely lighter than what we've currently got, which is a, you know, a major, major issue with the, the current formula. Uh, weight should realistically be something that we should be looking at to reduce, and that would obviously be performance-related as well. Uh, but as I say, I think that there's a lot of pol politics going on in order to try to reduce time. Now, we must remember that as of the next homo homologation point, when the new ERS comes into play, we're then in sort of a, a lockdown apart from you know um, reliability fixes, which as we know can be masked as performance fixes. That then leaves a very long time to develop a new unit from the current power, current power unit manufacturer's point of view, but also the incoming power unit manufacturer's point of view. And so I think there's also a lot going on behind the scenes in 
trying to frame regulations to prevent the kind of development that we've seen in the past, which was almost, you know, freewheeling. Uh, and that was part of the issue that Honda faced when they first entered the sport because they had a huge amount to catch up on. They didn't have the tools at their disposal that the other manufacturers had at their disposal. And I th think what uh, Red Bull in particular fear is that it could end up in another situation. You know, they're, they're quite eager, obviously, to join forces with, with the VAG group. Uh, and we're going to see some variation of, of a Red Bull Porsche VAG scenario unfold. And But then we've also got the likes of Honda still sat there in the background and also considering a re-entrance back into the sport in 2026, although they've never really left. A very good manoeuvre by Red Bull, let's say, uh, in what they did with the homologation points um, down the course of the, the next few years. So I think, it's, I think it's a very difficult situation that the FIA are having to try to frame things equitably amongst a group of people or manufacturers that all have diverging interests. You know, that, 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 is the, that is the problem, effectively. And the FIA must, in my opinion, lay the law down and stop listening to all of the political aspects that are, are trying to derail their future power unit. Okay, I love that answer. And I look forward to the eventual resolution and vote on these, reg these regulations five days before they're supposed to go into effect. Yeah, that's probably what will happen. <laughs> All right, you have time for a few listener questions before we go. Of course. All right, let's start with uh, Simon Billington. Would like to know, if you were to work in a team, what role would you enjoy having most? Um, a team principal, because then I can just argue with all the other team principals. That, that does sound like... That's all they one, seem right? to do. Yep. That's all they seem to do, is just argue with another team principal. All right, fair enough. Um, let's ask, this is a good one from Nick Hong Kong, Marsh. He would like to know about the new Aston Martin hires. How are they working out? And do you, are you starting, do you feel to see the influence of them? Because they, they hired Dan, some Red Bull people and some Mercedes people too. Um, are you starting to see that influence percolate there? And do you think that's going to work out for them? I think with Aston Martin, you have to look at them as a long-term project. It's not something that they could literally turn around within within a few days. You have to remember the expansion of that particular outfit from what had previously been Force India, Racing Point, and now Aston Martin. So there's a there's a bloating stage, isn't there, almost, where you, you take on too many people and then you start to scale back slightly to get to the point in which that you're you're looking for. I think they've hired some very, very good people, and I don't think that they will be far away from from becoming the type of outfit that they're looking to be. And I think the regulations in many ways are going to help them towards those goals. We've obviously seen them do some interesting things in the past in terms of um, copying their rivals. And prior to that, that outfit, under whatever guise it has been, have always been very innovative. They've come up with the most interesting solutions. And I think what we saw in Hungary with that rear wing is the first green shoot of this particular technical set of people coming in and, and giving license to the right people to be able to do that sort of project. And so as things progress, I think Aston will 
get to the point at which they're they're looking for. But unfortunately, obviously, it hasn't come within Sebastian Vettel's uh, time frame at the team. Uh, that is a shame. And let's finish up with an open-ended question, a, a bit of one to speculate on. Uh, from John M., let's say they removed the testing ban but kept the cost caps where they are. Who would come out on top? And and what do you think teams would choose to do? What, what would really be more efficient for them if, if you said that CFD, wind tunnel time, and test track time all came out of the same bucket and you could choose to spend the same amount of money on any of them in any way you wanted? Would we see teams testing again like that? Or, or do you think at this point it's just... It's going to be computers because ultimately they're more efficient. Uh, you can you can do more things with them for less money. I think that you might see the odd real world test appear where teams have got something that they have that you know they really want to to test to get a, a, a real understanding of. You know, if Mercedes had been in that situation for argument's sake at the start of the season, they would have ripped your arm off for for a. a, a three-day test for argument's sake to try to dial the car to a point where they understood more about how to get the best from the car but in terms of development like we used to see sort of two prior to 2009 where we had you know track testing was crazy you know the amount of time that we had uh they had separate test teams we have to remember uh in the early 2000s and 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 back in the past I don't think you would ever see anything like that because I don't think there's the performance to be gained from it anymore. Uh, the teams have such highly sophisticated tools at their disposal to improve the aerodynamic side of things that making full-scale parts now in that respect is not really the way to go about it. Um, they would rather iterate in CFD and the wind tunnel and then produce the part that's going to give them the biggest yield. I'm not saying that it would be a totally dead horse, but I just think that the proportion of real-world testing that they would choose over simulation would be pretty low. Okay, well, thank you so much for uh, coming along and sharing all your knowledge with us. Where can we find you? As always, Matt, the best place is on Twitter, uh, SummersF1. Uh, you can obviously read my stuff over on motorsport.com as well. Excellent. And of course, I'm always at MattPT55 on the internet. And until next time, this has been Missed Apex Podcast. <laughs>
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.